Okay, so um, go ahead and turn your notebooks over and we'll get started by sharing or talking about the disciplines. We are here, we're here to equip and encourage one another, the women of Grace Bible Church, to shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God. We do that with his word so that we live gospel transformed life. That's our purpose. We are here because we want to grow in that. We want to grow in living gospel transformed lives. And what does that do? Strengthens the church. When we grow um, in our gospel living, it strengthens the church in its gospel purpose. And the first discipline we keep before us, the discipline we keep before us all year throughout Wellspring, and the goal really is throughout all of our lives, is discipline one, the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. So we're going to do a quick review on the heart. What is the heart? Remember, it's the inner man. It's the person, um, the most important, or the inner man, the inner person. It's you in totality. It's the most important component of you. Remember, we have an outer man and we have an inner man. The outer man is our physical body and the inner man is our heart, the place in which God reveals himself to man. And remember, every thought, every desire, every will, every emotion, every deed comes from our hearts. Conversion takes place in our hearts. The place for which everything flows, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart above all else, for it is a wellspring of life. We are to guard it. And so when we say heart, we're talking about you, who you are at the core, you in totality. And remember what God has provided for our hearts. Those of us who are in Christ Jesus, he's given us new hearts. Yet there is that residue of sin. The residue of sin remains. We're in a mixed condition. Um, remember that blue, this blue, God's transformation of man, trifold. We're not who we once were. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We're in a mixed condition, the regenerate man. We're being conformed more into the image of his son. That's what we're going to talk about today. And then we're not who we will be someday in glory. And um, we look forward to that for sure, right? Um, but uh, God in his kindness has given us his word. He's given us his word and it's what he has given us to feed these hearts these hearts that are in a mixed condition. And discipline one is all about our heart coming into full contact with his word to worship him, to increase our desire and to increase our love for him, to grow in our dependence on him and to humble ourselves before him and under his word. Discipline two is, uh, uh, well, I'll just read it. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home she ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. And then, uh, so our home is the first place where the gospel should spill out, right? And then thirdly, discipline three, ministry. With a heart for God, discipline one, and keeping her God-given ministry within her home, that's discipline two. The faithful woman of God steps into, into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. 
And, you know, I wanted to just read a little part of this prayer that Scott shared with us. You guys have this, right? Um, did, did he share this, the, an example of how Wellspring disciplines might shape your prayerful approach to God through his word? I encourage you to just get that out. Become familiar with the heart attitude in this prayer. And this sums up the disciplines um, in, the, in the last chapter. He says, I desire um, my heart and mine to be full of you because of what these pages reveal to me about you. I long for you to spill out of me into my home, discipline too, and wherever you lead me today. All of life is ministry, that's discipline three. All who come into contact with me today must interact with a woman whose heart has drawn near to you. Their best hope for salvation or for growth in the gospel will come from one who has searched for you in your word and gazed upon your son in the gospel. That's so good. Really sums up the disciplines. All right, so if you haven't already, take out your outline. And today we're going to be looking specifically at what God's word has to say about the danger of a prideful heart. And we are also going to be talking a lot about the hope of the gospel. We need to. We have to. Um, talking about sin really isn't a popular thing today in, in like the big church culture, right? It's not very popular. All we, all, a lot of what's talked about these days is grace. But, um, you know, without talking about sin, how amazing is grace? Um, God's word talks about it, so we need to we need to know what God's word says about sin and His answer for that, and so it makes the gospel the good news when we see the depravity of our sin and we know what we see what He has accomplished um, in our place. Christ paid the penalty for our sin, so the power of sin was broken. The presence of sin remains in our heart, and today we're going to be talking about fighting fighting the sin of pride. In progressive sanctification, that's the middle part of the chart, we are being progressively sanctified. And I just want to tell you, God chooses to use sinful people to fulfill his good purposes. So as I share with you today, <laughs> yeah, I've had the opportunity to sit before his word and this lesson once again in his uh, good plan and in his sovereignty to examine my own heart and recognize areas of pride in my life. And so there is conviction. There's much conviction. But I've had to remind and shepherd my heart, and I want you to leave here remembering what Romans 8 tells us. For the believer, there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So it might be hard to hear some of this, but just remember that. So, um, you know, I prayed and I prayed for you much this week and ask God for help to fight sin harder and to have a heart that wants to obey by his grace so we can press on together. So um, uh, I'm going to keep going here and I want to remind you, I love what the angst said, say I'm just one beggar showing another beggar where the bread is and that's who we all are, right? So I want to start by asking you, do you see yourself as a prideful person? When you hear the word pride or arrogant, 
you know, we might be tempted to think of someone else first, right? Um, you know, pride is so much easier to spot in someone else or to identify in someone else, isn't, isn't it? But as seriously dangerous as pride is, it's equally hard to spot in ourselves. The thing is, others can see it more clearly or see more clearly those things we may not recognize about ourselves or may be unwilling to address. Remember, our hearts are prone to deceive and are prone to being deceived. And hopefully, by God's grace, we'll continue to grow and being able to identify areas of pride and see pride as God sees it and grow in the grace and knowledge of him and become more conformed to his image and sanctification. And, you know, pride is something we all struggle with. We all struggle with it. But we must guard our hearts against being okay with that. Yeah, okay, we all struggle with it. So, you know, that's okay. We, that's, just, that's just who we are. Um, or whatever sin. It's tempting to even um, elevate that kind of thinking or elevate our sin and becoming proud that we see it, but not battle to eradicate it out of our lives. So we want to learn to see God, uh, sin as God sees it and look to his word and the great cost that was paid, and it should cause our hearts to be humbled, to be broken, to be contrite over our sin, because we need to see ultimately that it is against God. And to be humbled by the fact that I am no longer a slave to pride. I have power to obey. I didn't want to have that. I didn't have that power before, and I did not want to want to obey at all. And now, with our new hearts, we do. So, in order to help us see and understand how pride displays itself and how to help identify pride in our own hearts, we're going to start with some questions. And for those of you who have done Wellspring before, you might be kind of familiar with these questions and say, uh-oh. <laughs> so, um, and if you haven't, it's okay. And I think it's in your handouts. Uh, but just don't look at it right now. Just listen um, and Spend some time this next week going over those questions before God. So here's how we're going to help identify pride in our hearts. Are you quick to find fault with others? Do you have a sharp, critical tongue? Do you frequently correct or criticize your husband or others in position of leadership? Do you give undue time, undue attention, and effort to your physical appearance, like your hair and your makeup and your clothing and your weight and your body? Or... Are you proud that you don't waste time on that? See, it goes both ways, right? Are you proud of the schedule you keep, how disciplined you are, how much you're able to accomplish in a day? Or are you proud of how laid back you are? Are you driven to receive approval and praise and acceptance from others? Do you generally think your way is the right way, the only way? the best way? Do you have a sensitive spirit? Are you easily offended? Do you get your feelings hurt easily? Are you guilty of pretense, trying to leave a better impression of yourself than is really true? Do you have a hard time admitting when you're wrong? Do you have a hard time confessing your sin to God and to others? Do you become defensive when you're criticized or corrected? Are you a perfectionist? Do you get impatient with people who aren't? Do you tend to be controlling of others? 
husband, your children, your friends, co-workers? Does your husband or anyone else feel like he can never measure up to your expectations? Do you often complain about the weather, your health, your circumstances, your job, your church? Are you more concerned about your problems, your needs, or burdens than about others? Do you worry about what others think of you? Too concerned about your reputation or your family's reputation? Do you neglect to express gratitude for little things to God and to others? Do you neglect prayer and intake of the word? Is it hard for you to let others know when you need help, either practically or spiritually? When was the last time you said these words? I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? Are you sitting here thinking how many of these questions apply to someone you know? These are hard questions, aren't they? Very convicting questions. I know they were for me anyway. So have you changed your thinking on how pride can show kind of subtle sometimes, but how it can show itself in your heart. One author said, pride is self-obsession. Pride is preoccupation with ourselves. Therefore, it's a lie about reality. It says, I am worth thinking about all the time. It's an orientation that wrongly assumes that everything revolves around us. It deserves to die, but it's hard to spot and even harder to kill. It's a slippery sin. Jonathan Edwards said, Pride is the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all sins. So let's take a look at God's concern for pride in the heart. And we're going to start by looking at Deuteronomy 17. If you can turn there, please. Deuteronomy 17 and the danger to which pride exposes the heart. So here Moses is giving instruction to Israel regarding a king that they will have someday. And starting in verse 18, he says, Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law. He's to write down the law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Why? That he may learn to fear the Lord his God. How? By carefully observing all the words this law, um, of this law and these statutes, so that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So the king's to write a copy of the law in the presence of the Levitical priests. Um, to make sure that he gets it right, it's to always be in his presence. He's to read it all the days of his life so that he'll learn to fear the Lord through obedience. He's to keep God's word with him. He's to read it in order to prevent him from lifting up his head above others in arrogance and pride, to prevent the king from thinking that he was better than the rest. He needed God's word close to his heart so that he didn't exempt himself from the standard that everyone else had to live by. He's to live by the same standard. 
the king of Israel was to live on, uh, was to be on the same level ground as everyone else. And it was God's word, God's revelation of himself that would do the leveling. The great leveler for all of us is God's word, right? So on your outline, we have some how about you or how about me questions. And really, they're just there to help you keep um, just to uh, keep your heart focused on uh, trying to evaluate where you are and not and to guard against thinking about maybe someone else. So the first how about me question is, do I realize that I will exalt myself without a steady diet of God's word? Do we really see that? Do you realize that? Um, I'll start thinking that somebody else needs God's word more than I do and exempt myself. We need to continually be exposed to God's word at the heart level. That's why we talk about discipline one so much. To prevent us from lifting up our hearts above others in pride. To prevent us from thinking we are somehow above others around us. Or quickly point our finger at those who are not as good as we are, or those who have been caught in sin, we need to be continually, worshipfully, prayerfully exposed to God's word at the heart level to prevent us from elevating ourselves from others in pride and to seek a humble attitude through his word, an attitude that says, but for the grace of God, there go I. And to feel deeply grateful that God, by his grace, has kept us or perhaps rescued us from sin. So back on your outline, um, let's turn to Proverbs 16.5. And this is Solomon, what Solomon is uh, saying to his son about pride. Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. The Holman Christian Standard says, is detestable to the Lord. God hates it. And says he will not be unpunished. That's God's response to pride. It must be punished. So, you know, I may hate my sin, but we see how God feels about it. He hates it even more. The Son of God, he was punished for our pride and for our arrogance at the cross. He didn't change his mind how he feels about it. Christ willingly became my sin that my arrogance was to God. And I must preach my um, preach that truth, the gospel realities that we're going to talk about all throughout the, uh, the morning. Preach them to my heart. See my sin clearly in light of the price that was paid and what God accomplished on my behalf. And do you do that? That's the next question. Do I preach the gospel realities to my heart and let them turn me away from the arrogance? to which Christ suffered and died. All right, let's turn to Hosea now. Hosea 13. Hosea 13, 4 through 6. Now, Hosea is a prophet, and this is a clear statement from God about the way he saw himself with Israel at the time of Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. And God is looking back. Hosea 13, starting in verse 4. He says, yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you are not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness and in the land of drought. And then from talking to them, he shifts and he starts talking about them in verse 6. As they had their pasture, they became 
satisfied. And being satisfied, we see what happens. Their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. We see here how, danger, how dangerous a prideful heart is. A prideful heart can lead to forget God. He warned them about that back in Deuteronomy 8. Remember the survey of the home that Jenna talked about? And we see, we see here that the root, we're going to be talking more about the root of sin, but the root of forgetting God is pride. Their heart became proud, therefore they forgot me. There is such a danger, ladies, when we're satisfied, when we're comfortable, when we have God's provision, we're blessed and we're satisfied. That's when we need to watch out. That's when our hearts can become proud and we can be tempted to forget God. And none of us are exempt from that temptation. There's never a day that we won't have to watch for that. You know, it's easy to remember to cry out to God and be dependent on Him and not forget Him when things are hard, right? When relationships are hard, we have financial problems or health issues. Those trials, they help us see our need for the Lord. But we always need the Lord. We always do, right? So what can we do to be just as intentional about seeking the Lord when we're satisfied, when we're comfortable? Again, we go back to discipline one. It's what we always talk about. We must bring our hearts before God and his word and, and acknowledge our constant, ongoing need. And so I want to encourage you again to just bring, take out that prayer that Scott shared and um, and maybe you're doing that or you've written your own, but it's a good, it's a great prayer to, uh, to um, get your heart to a place that's uh, uh, humble before the Lord. In Hosea and in Deuteronomy 8, we saw one way that pride might show in our lives. When things are okay, when things are going great, we can forget God. Well, how else might we forget God? When we find ourselves using the excuse of busyness for not meeting with God and his word, for not praying, are you ever convicted of pride? We might not see that as pride, um, but that's what's so tricky about pride, about rooting it out, because um, it just wears a lot of faces. And, you know, I realize that um, there are seasons of busyness and there's challenges in life and there's obstacles and many of us live busy lives. Busyness is not necessarily the sin. That's not what we're talking about. It may be the season you're in. But if you're using busyness as an excuse for not meeting with God in his word, for not praying, for not acknowledging your dependence on him, when we don't make our relationship with him and our time with him a priority, do you know what we're saying, really? We're saying, God, I know better than you what my heart needs today. And that's pride. I know better. I know better what my heart needs today. So because we don't always see the root and the faces of pride and how there's depths and layers, it's, it's just helpful to identify, to identify the reason and the condition of our heart and to root it out. When we constantly neglect to prioritize time with him, in his word, time with prayer, do you see now how that is, uh, can lead to forgetting God? You know, one day leads to two, two days lead to three, 
Next thing you know, it's a week. Next thing you know, it's a month. And suddenly we find ourselves forgetting God. I know better than God what my heart needs. So, next question. Do I see how dangerous a prideful heart is? Because it can lead to divine forgetfulness. And when I'm tempted to not meet with him because, you know, things are great, things, I'm blessed, things are going well, um, and I'm busy, I've got to remind myself at that very moment what I need most, what my heart needs most. My heart needs to meet with him and to draw near to him more than anything else, even in, in uh, times of busyness and times of blessing, because that's when I can be tempted to forget God. All right, so let's move on. You guys doing okay? <laughs> let's move on to Second Chronicles. We're going to look at King Uzziah. Second Chronicles 26. Second Chronicles 26, starting in verse 1. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king. And in verse 4 it says, He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah. Who, has understanding, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. And then in verse 6 through 15, it tells all, describes all the kinds of victories and achievements. And in verse 7, it says why? God helped him. And then in verse 15, hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped by God until he was strong. Verse 16 but when he became strong, what happened? His heart was so proud. It's the same danger we saw in Deuteronomy 8, same danger we saw in Hosea. He was successful, he was strong. See, success can be dangerous to our hearts if we're not guarding our hearts. It's the very thing we pursue, right? And, and that's a fine pursuit. But when we can let that compete, with our affection for the Lord. We see the danger here. Verse 16, when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the Lord and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And how's that, how is that acting corruptly? How's that being unfaithful to the Lord? Well, we see here in verse 17, then Azariah the priest entered after him with uh, 80 priests of the Lord valiant men, and they opposed Uzziah, the king, and said to him, it's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you've been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. See, Uzziah was unfaithful to the Lord because he overstepped his boundary, or his authority that God had given him. The Lord had marvelously helped him. He had granted him success and victories, but Service in the temple was reserved for priests, descendants of Aaron. Even though he was king, it wasn't for him to take. Burning incense wasn't a bad thing. But Uzziah wasn't qualified to do it. It wasn't his role. So let's think for a moment. How about us? Are you ever tempted to grasp authority that hasn't been given to you? Are you ever tempted to work around the roles that God has for you? in your marriage, with your parents, boss, 
Now, maybe Uzziah thought he was entitled. After all, he was king, right? But again, he wasn't entitled. So do I ever do that? Next question, am I ever tempted to grasp authority which hasn't been given to me or feel a sense of entitlement? It's so tempting to have an attitude of entitlement, isn't it? Culture screams entitlement. Women's rights. Our our, uh, hearts, if they're not in full contact with God's word, we can begin to believe this lie. Like I'm entitled to something for me. I have the right to me time. I'm entitled to respect, especially for my children, right? Appreciation. I'm entitled to appreciation. I'm entitled to comfort. We deserve, and you fill in the blank, a break today, time alone, respect, fulfillment, happiness, health. Think about what we really deserve, though. What do we really really deserve? We deserve hell, right? So I must go back to thinking about my identity in Christ, gospel thinking, and repent of a prideful sense of entitlement. When we think what we want is more important than what God has for us. That's pride. Now, desire is not sinful. Many desires are not sinful. If they're okay desires, they're not sinful desires. But when I demand what I desire and sin to get it, thinking I'm entitled, it's important to realize what's going on in my heart. How I react, even in my heart, when I'm not treated the way I feel I'm entitled to be treated or don't get what I'm entitled, what I think I'm entitled to. Maybe your kids aren't obeying. Maybe the husband's not living up to what you want. Maybe someone is rude to you. Maybe get cut off on the freeway. You know, I don't get the attention I think I deserve. It's good to practice to pay attention to your heart at those times. See how your heart reacts, how it responds. It helps you, it helps you to root out that pride in your heart. Now, a sense of entitlement can take on many, many forms. Another form might be laziness because I think I'm entitled to do what I wanna do with my time. And what might laziness look like in our lives? Well, it might look like overindulgence in sleep or entertainment, TV, computer time, like reading blogs, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest. Not that any of those things are bad, right? In fact, many of them are quite helpful. But isn't it so easy to get caught up and spend more time than I really have? Laziness is really putting anything ahead of responsibilities. It's selfish gain. I'm going to say it again because I really want you to hear me. Many of those things that we battle with when we battle laziness are not bad. Being on the computer is not bad. But any time we put what we want to do or think we're entitled to ahead of what God has given us to do, like spending time with Him in His Word, Helping our husbands, caring for our home, for our families, for our roommates, for those who enter into our home, serving the body of Christ, discipline and training children, reaching out to the lost. Anytime we're putting 
ourselves first, self-exaltation and self-promotion, which is what the world would encourage us to do, right? It can be prideful. We can be prideful. This is very convicting, isn't it? Yes? No? (laughs) Pride in the heart can lead to a sense of entitlement, which can lead to overstepping authority or laziness, self-exaltation. See, sin has partners. There's connections, and it brings other sins along. So again, this is just helpful to train ourselves to identify those things, to ask others to help us make that connection, others that are in our lives that are closest to us, to see the sin under the sin. And asking others is just the opposite of pride, isn't it? It's humbling to do that, to humble ourselves by asking others to help us see areas that we may not see. Let's look at this in the New Testament now. Let's look at James 3. Turn to chapter or to James chapter 3. And um, in, in chapter 2, James had been dealing with those in the body who were drawing party lines, and they were showing preferential treatment, especially to the rich, and they were dishonoring the poor, and he gives instruction and warning to them. And then in chapter 3, verse 13, He says, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, where? In your heart. Do not be arrogant so as to lie against the truth. This wisdom that which... This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. See, if we have bitter jealousy in our hearts, if we have selfish ambition in our hearts, it positions us to be arrogant and prideful. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition unchecked will lead. To arrogance. Again, this passage in James, it just helps to see how one sin easily leads to another kind of sin. And the good news is, when we fight sin strategically, by his grace, it just might help in defeating, defeating others, like a chain reaction, like dominoes, just de- instead of just dealing with one. See, when we have jealousy, when we have selfish ambition, what's the root of that? It's pride. So we get to the root. Does that make sense? So far, we've seen a few faces of pride, forgetting God, sense of entitlement, maybe overstepping our boundaries, laziness, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. If we go after the root, we see and repent of pride, we'll actually be doing battle with other sins. And so it's just important to train ourselves and even ask others for help to make these connections to see our heart. All right, let's turn to 2 Chronicles now. 2 Chronicles 32. We're going to look at another face of pride as if we need more. <laughs> Second Chronicles 32:24. King Hezekiah. In those days Hezekiah became mortally ill and he prayed to the Lord and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign, but Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit 
he received. The NIV says he did not respond to the kindness shown to him. And why? Because his heart was proud. It's another face of pride. He didn't respond to the kindness God showed him. Maybe he wasn't thankful. So how might we fail to respond to God's kindness? I think we're familiar with Romans 2.4. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Do you hate admitting your sin? Are you quick to repent when you've sinned? To seek forgiveness when you've sinned against someone else? Or, or your sins affected someone else in some way? Or are you tempted to just ignore it or do you ignore it and think everyone should just move on? Maybe to be tempted to think it's really not that big of a deal to avoid a very uncomfortable situation and that's just not repentant. That's a failure to respond to God's kindness and evidence of pride. See, God's kindness leads us to repentance. And if you want, um, I don't have that on your outline, but to see the zealousness and the kind, what true repentance looks like, it's in 2 Corinthians 7. Another way um, we may not respond to God's kindness might be complaining or discontentment. Failure to respond to God's kindness um, to us in all circumstances. A complaining attitude I, I got to tell you that I'm so convicted. I can fall into this so easily um, to complain about appearance, how hard we work, how tired we are, unbelieving family members, difficulties with people that you live with or work with or financial problems or self-pity because we think our life should just be different, should just be different somehow. Complaining in any form reflects a discontented heart, because at a heart level, we really think we deserve something better, something different than what we have right now. And I got to tell you, I know many of you, along with me, have been so encouraged by the Dodds, you know, and even challenged by their heart attitude in the trial that they're going through. You know, when I talked to her, um, she said it's good to be brought low. It's where we are anyway, and. I don't know how many times you know we've read that if God had anything better for them, that's where that that's where He would have them, and this is God's best for them. And I want that kind of I want to grow in that kind of attitude. And we were um, we don't really believe that whatever the circumstance is, God's good for me or His best for me. We need to evaluate and examine our hearts in that. It's a failure to respond to God's kindness. And you know what? If you struggle with this. With that, discontentment or anything like that, this book, anybody read this book, Greener Grass Conspiracy? Oh my goodness, this is a book we should read every year. I need to read every, I'll say me, I need to read this book every year and have it before me. It's so good in helping to root out that, uh, the sin of um, prideful discontentment. Um, and this is the last one that I saw on the bookshelf, so I'll be sure and ask Jeff to order more. Um, all right, so in Second Chronicles 32, it says that the evidence of pride in my heart is not responding to God's kindness. And look at the consequence of that pride in verse at the end of verse 25. Therefore, wrath came on him, and 
on Judah and Jerusalem. See, others may experience consequences of our sin. Do we realize that? Do we realize the impact our pride and our sin will have on others? Consequences of sin run deep and they run wide many times. But then verse 26, here's some encouragement. However, Hezekiah humbled the pride in his heart. Who humbled the pride in his heart? Hezekiah did. Both he and his ha- and the ha- inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. And that gives us encouragement. God was willing to turn back his wrath in the face of repentance. And the hope of believers who live after the cross is that Christ bore God's righteous wrath against our sin. He gives us a new heart so that we can repent. So we can repent of pride. And we can humble our hearts because we have a new ability in Christ. So another question, how about me? And these questions are on your homework. So to go back and kind of think about and pray about, but how might I fail to respond to God's kindness? Do I recognize the impact my pride has on others? How might, other, how might others experience consequences from my sin? Okay, so we've seen many faces of pride, tempting us to forget God, often through success and blessing, not staying within our authority, sense of entitlement, laziness, not responding to God's kindness, not repenting of sin, complaining, discontentment, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. The list is endless. So when pride is exposed in our hearts, what should we do? What should we do? Well, it helps to try to recognize that there's connections between sin. Partner, um, they partner with each other. Sin rare, rarely operates on its own. So we fight sin strategically. And we deal with that pride when, it, when God in his kindness exposes it to us by his grace and the gospel. These are things we must bring to the cross. And you know what I want to tell you too? Just remember this. Believer, it's not that it's not there. It's, God, it's God's kindness to us that he shows us so we can deal with it and repent it's there it's just that he's revealing it so it's good it's good and we ask him please show me where pride exists show me where i tend to be arrogant and give me eyes to see give me eyes to see father and we confess and we repent we turn we deal with it we seek forgiveness from those whom we've sinned against in our pride Those are things for which Christ died. And we ask him because it's so easy for us to see pride in others, but not in ourselves. And what do we do when we see sin in others? What do we do when we see pride and arrogance in others? We certainly should um, see it as an opportunity to go before the Lord and ask him, Father, make me nearsighted to see my sin first before I see anyone else's. Help me to see the huge log in my own eye, Matthew 7, and repent of that so that I am ready to go help my sister with her speck. So we humble ourselves and we repent of our pride. All right, let's take a look now at what God's Word says about humility. It's the opposite of pride, cultivating humility. Let's turn to 1 Peter 1 Peter 5, and um, I like what uh, William Law says about this. He's an 18th century, as Anne Aced would say, dead guy. Um, and humility is nothing else but a right judgment of ourselves. It's a right judgment of ourselves. That's humility. 
A.W. Tozer says, the meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him, and he stopped caring. He's not concerned with opinions of others. He's concerned with God's opinion. And I'm, I'm just going to pause right now. Before I forget, I grabbed this book off of the bookshelf too. Not that I'm promoting books or anything, because our time with him and his word is priority. But these books have been instrumental in, instrumental in my life. And here's another one. When we're concerned about the opinions of others, God calls it fear of man. This book is so good. When people are big and God is small. Anybody read that? Anybody read this book? This is a good book to read and to shepherd our heart with. I feel like I'm like promoting books here, but it's good. All right, 1 Peter 5, um, starting in verse 5, he says, young men, be subject to your elders. And then, he, and then he goes on and he says, and all of you, all of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He says, all of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. We're to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. Humility is something that has to be lived out in relationships. When we are in relationships with others, our hearts are exposed more, right, to better position our hearts to see. Um, the passage continues, verse 6, Therefore, humble yourselves where? Under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. And here's how he shows us how to humble ourselves. Verse 7, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Wait, he calls us to humble ourselves by accepting the care he has for us. It's actually pride to reject his care. C.J. Mahaney says about this verse in Humility. It's another good book. And it is, there's a bunch of them out there on the bookshelf. Where there's worry, where there's anxiousness, pride is at the root. When I'm experiencing anxiety, the root issue is that I'm trying to be self-sufficient I'm acting independent of God. It's, a, it's really a form of forgetting God, right? So the solution is to humble ourselves where? Under God's mighty hand. So when we, hum, when we need to humble ourselves before others, when we need to confess sin, when we're criticized, when we're rebuked, we can look beyond the person to our mighty God. To our mighty God who cares for you. He loves you. He's the one we're humbling ourselves to. He's the one who is at work in us for his good, for our good and his glory. Humility is having an accurate view of ourselves and of our Savior and seeing others as an instrument God is using to purify us. The heart of humility is remembering the gospel, fleeing to Christ, admitting how prideful we are, and thanking God and praising God for what he's done for us at the cross. He poured out his wrath against our pride. He set us free. We're no longer slaves to pride. 
That's what makes repentance a joy. Um, yeah. All right, let's turn to Colossians 3. Let's turn to Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. And not only will a humble heart draw us near our Savior, but it will also draw us near one another. Colossians 3, 12. So, and this is really, uh, watch how Paul starts out with who we are and our gospel identity. Verse 12. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved. So there's our gospel identity, who we are in Christ. And because of that, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So the command to be humble is grounded in our gospel identity, who we are in Christ. And if we're to wage war with our pride and cultivate hum humility, we must feed our hearts with a steady diet of the gospel. Humility grows um, out of a heart that cherishes Jesus Christ. He's our greatest treasure in the truth and realities of our identity and what he's accomplished on the cross. I just want to read this part of the Gospel Primer, another must-have book. If you don't have it, I see that they're back there for $9. If you don't have it, it's a really great investment and something to read um, every year at least. This is on the um, section, Cultivating Humility. According to Scripture... God deliberately designed the gospel in such a way so as to strip me of my pride and leave me without any grounds for boasting in myself whatsoever. This is actually a wonderful mercy from God, for pride is at the root of all my sin. Pride produced the first sin in the garden, and pride always precedes every sinful stumbling in my life. Therefore, if I'm to experience deliverance from sin, I must be delivered from the pride that produces it. Thankfully, the gospel is engineered to accomplish this deliverance. Preaching the gospel to myself each day mounts a powerful assault against my pride and serves to establish humility in its place. Nothing suffocates my pride more than daily reminders regarding the glory of my God the gravity of my sins, and the crucifixion of God's own Son in my place. Also, the gracious love of God lavished on me because of Christ's death is always humbling to remember, especially when viewed against the backdrop of the hell I deserve. Pride wilts in the atmosphere of the gospel. And the more pride is mortified within me, the less frequent are my moments of sinful contention with God and with others. Conversely, humility grows lushly in the atmosphere of the gospel, and the more humility flourishes within me, the more I experience God's grace. Along with the strengthening His grace provides. Additionally, such humility intensifies my passion for God, causes my heart increasingly to thrill whenever He is praised. 
how we cultivate humility. The second thing we don't want to miss, I think that's the second part there in your outline, humility serves a greater purpose. Humility is essential for building unity and love between believers. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I've loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one another. All men will know that we're his disciples, and that's what we want. We're not our own, we're his slaves. And he's our kind master. He's entrusted us with the greatest treasure the treasure of Christ's finished work on the cross so that we can walk in newness of life. We can walk, we can walk in humility. We can live with one another in such a way that the world says, you know, how they're living is just not normal. Why do you live like that? Why do you serve one another with joy? Why do you, why do you care for one another the way you do? This kind of living adorns the gospel and it puts Christ on display. It declares the power of the gospel to make us what we could never be apart from Christ. And finally, let's turn again to Philippians 2. I know Jenna read it this morning, and I just want to end there because we want to end with Jesus um, and his example. Oh, wait, wait, you didn't read Philippians 2. Yeah, sorry. I think we're going to end there in a minute. <laughs> um, I lost my place, so hold on. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And that's what we're called to do. Not driven to please ourselves, but pursue love, pursue unity with the body of Christ. Similar to Colossians 3, this appeal to unity and love. And in verse 3, do nothing from selfish, uh, selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, having this attitude in yourself, which was all, also in Christ Jesus. And then listen to the way, to what this says about our Savior. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. A thing to be grasped after. That's what we are tempted to do, to grasp after what we want. But Jesus didn't grasp. Verse 7 says he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, a slave. Jesus took on the form of a slave. And being in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's how we've received enabling grace. The grace to turn from pride and all its many, many faces to humility, to love, because Jesus gave himself on the cross to bear away the penalty for our selfishness, for our selfish ambition, to break the power of sin over us, and to give us a new life in a love relationship with himself and with his people. It's the power of the gospel. So to battle pride, we need to always be on the lookout for the many faces. The list is endless. And humility, humility is fundamentally a form of self-forgetfulness as opposed to pride's 
self-fixation. When you think about yourself less, you're free to think about Christ more. Seeing the cross rightly helps us to battle. Seeing the cross rightly means we see ourselves rightly. Pride is defeated decisively at conversion, progressively in sanctification, and ladies, totally in glorification, where we will experience everlasting worship of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for choosing us, for loving us, for calling us. And Father, again, I ask if there's conviction um, this morning that you would also, by your Spirit, Help us to battle and um, be doers of your word. And we ask, Lord, that we are uh, that we are mindful of who you are, identity in Christ, that we think of ourselves less and you more and delight in you more, our Savior, Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in, in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need.